Hey guys, Becky here. Just a heads up that I had a technical glitch with this episode and we needed to record it over the phone line. So the audio quality isn't up to our usual standards. Regardless, this episode is packed with great stories about some fantastic movies, which are, fortunately, all easy to get because our guests work for the company that distributes them. So please bear with us. Thanks as always for listening. And now, on with the show. After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week, oh guys, we've got a real treat for you. You know how we're always having problems finding Canadian film and figuring out where it goes, and a lot of our filmmakers are like, distribution, it's a problem in this country. We've got people who are trying to fix that problem, and they're doing a darn good job of it. First and foremost, I have the president of Unobstructed View. I'm talking to Jonathan Gross. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? Good to be here. Thank you so much for coming. A lot of, I was kind of surprised that there was a podcast like this. I got a lot of thoughts, so it'll be fun. <laughs> oh, good. I'm excited to hear all of them, and I know our listeners are as well. But with you, I just want to bring on, we have the VP of Distribution and Marketing, two very important key cornerstones in Canadian film. We have Carrie Koopas with us today as well. Hey, how are you? Hi, good. Thanks for having us. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad to have you guys on. Um, so before we start out into the four films that you guys brought, this is going to be a two-part episode like we've done with the CFC and the NSC as we dive a little bit deeper into some of the films you guys are distributing. Jonathan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Unobstructed View? I was living in Los Angeles 25, 26 years ago doing some writing. And I'd been in the 80s uh, in Toronto, my family, we had a, a VHS manufacturing operation. We made VHS tape for Disney and some other people. But I wanted to be a writer, so I moved out to L.A. And uh, I think it was 1993, I got a call from a customer of mine, or a former customer of mine in Kitchener, who had a company called Video Entertainment Corporation. We used to supply VHS tape to him. And he had cornered the market in women in prison films. And back in the days of early home video, you know, a lot of things were, were manufactured without a whole lot of attention to legalities. And this guy made a fortune with movies like Manson and Penitentiary 1 and 2. And despite a whole lot of cease and desist letters, he could do very well. So he had a confidentiality clause. He sold his company to a guy who had a company called Tradeflix, which had made a ton of money uh, repurposing all the um, the stores that used to that were before Blockbuster was called. What was it, Family Video, Carrie? I think so. I know, that was before my time. And he made a lot of money restocking those stores, but he blew it all gambling. And I flew up with my sister. We bought the company for pennies. I let him operate it for a while, but I realized the business model had changed, and I kind of mothballed the whole thing. And I and came this is in 1993, Jonathan? 94. And I'd come back to Toronto after the earthquake, and my wife didn't want to live in L.A. anymore. So I, I wasn't going to be a writer up in Toronto. I just that business model didn't work for me. I had kids to support. So I went up and unmothballed all these women in prison films and all the packaging and started doing a lot of cheap discount work with um, Zellers. God remember them. I had a friend of mine uh, in the home video business. He said, you know, there's this TV show that's hot right now, the Royal uh, Canadian Air Force. And I had known Roger Abbott from the Farce because I had written a fairly horrible Gemini Award show with him once years before. 
because you know we we did the best of this air force thing. We can sell a few VHS copies of Eaton's. I'm going back a ways, and sure enough, we we cobbled together a tape, sold a bunch, and that was a stalwart of my business for four or five years. This annual Royal Canadian Air Force Video Yearbook, and that was the number one show on the CBC. We say we invented TV self food, but we were certainly one of the first people to put TV shows on tape. We graduated. Just I was. That went out, and a kid in my warehouse said, you know, this is kid in Ottawa on cable you should talk to is Tom Green. We kind of discovered Tom Green the day he signed with MTV, and that kept us going. And then we did a gold medal video, and then we, we got very lucky with the air, with um, Corner Gas, Kenny versus Spenny, and Spenny's my cousin. So we had a bunch of sell-through, Russell Peters. But that business kind of died, and we had to get into the feature film business. And over the years, we'd done a couple of projects. Uh, we had restored uh, the great Canadian Cafe Depresso film, Wedding in White. Are you familiar with Sorry, that one? Carol Kane. Oh, yeah. Starring Carol go. Kane. And because of that, she got her first Oscar nomination for uh, Hester Street because the director of that Look at you. Boy, boy, you're, you're... So Carol became a friend of mine. Um, <laughs> and it was the two guys from Going Down the Road because there were only two actors in Canada back then. Uh, and they did that film. And it was we we put that out for a short period, and Carol was great. She did a commentary track for me, and we we had some fun with a few films. We weren't doing much with new films that we struck up a deal with Magnolia, and over the years I have my passion, you know. And and Bill Marshall, God rest his soul, brought Outrageous to us, and we had a good run with that for a long time. We still sort of have rights. Um, for TV and things like that, and we, we, we made him some money. And he had a couple of other films. He had that James Coburn film, Carrie, what was it called? James Coburn film? I don't remember. Which yeah, there was a couple of small Canadian films that he had that we took out. He had that Linda oh, Blair Oh, Mr. Patman? Yeah, the Linda Blair film with, with Alan Waxman. Um, the oh, the, 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 um, the horse one. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a Western, that's why. Um, yeah, so we, we had some about Wild Horse Look Hank. at that. And these are Bill Marshall films. And we put them out. I actually did a commentary track with Linda Blair. Which so was, we should which just quickly clear. explain that Bill Marshall is one of the co-founders of the Toronto Film Festival. And he was yeah. also a producer and director. He yeah, passed he's, away like a year or two ago, I believe. Yeah, um, he, he was honored quite quite nicely by the festival. And his boy, his, his widow is a lovely woman. And we, we love Billy. Um, and... You know, go back to Dusty Cole and, and those guys. These are the guys that kind of built the festival of festivals. They have to be respected from day one because Toronto was nothing back then. And so about 10, 11, I made some money off of Porter Gas, and I had found the only print in existence of Face Off. But that, so that's that's what, what we started restoring, a little more Canadian films, having some fun with it. But, we, you know, we were full-service distribution coming. We put movies in theaters. Uh, we have Canadian films we've distributed, new ones. We love catalog. We, we were one of the first people to put out Black Christmas on DVD. So we're, we're into it, trust me. We're into it because I'm, I'm, I'm of an age where I remember these things quite vividly as, as a young man and a youth. And those movies had an impact on me. So it's very personal for me. In addition to all the great Canadian content you guys are presenting, um, we also have uh, the Criterion Collection. Is uh, You guys are distributing that throughout Canada. Kino Lorber, Magnolia Pictures, Vinegar Syndrome. Like, the people you are partnering with is ridiculous. Um, so either, uh, people are going to be able to get tons of great content through your distribution. We have a website, unobstructedview.com. We have Arrow. 
a bunch of stuff. CAB out of San Francisco. We, we're we're the cult people. Yeah, we're sort of the last stories. people that are doing DVD distribution in the indie sphere. Not really the last, but in in a large way. So we have oh, we yeah. have clients like Cinema One has a lot of our stuff. Sunrise Records, whatever left of retail. Amazon, of course, but the site is actually the best prices and the best place to get stuff. I have to say that the the big advantage I see to physical media is one, it just doesn't disappear off your streaming platform uh, magically, uh, and two, often it's packed with like awesome special features and uh, commentary tracks. You mentioned you had one with Carol Kane for Women in White or Wedding in White. Like that for me speaks to me as the the biggest important value of continuing to produce physical media. Would you say that that's correct? I, I think there's there's two factors at work now. I think one, yes, the, the bonus features, of course, Criterion, the restorations, the edits, those are all cinephile quality features. The other thing is that this stuff is disappearing from a lot of platforms. It, it, it's very hard to find these things uh, in any kind of streaming platform or broadcast or pay. They're going away. So it, it becomes, and a lot of the labels we work with Keep it on disc only because they don't want to get what they're doing fouled up on iTunes and things like that. We have Blue Underground. They got crazy stuff. They're on iTunes, but, you know, the hardcore crowd want to own this thing. You know, it's not a, we have a booth every year at Fan Expo. It's not uncommon for people to come by the booth and say, yeah, I've got 10,000 DVDs. So we tend to concentrate on that crowd. You brought out Outrageous, which we absolutely love. That's one of our favorites. Right. Uh, and Carrie, you were saying before we started this, you guys sent me a list of all of the Canadian films we could talk about, and there was some awesome ones on there. Some of them we'd already talked about on the show, like Outrageous and, of course, Hardcore Logo, which everyone wants to talk about because it's everybody's favorite Canadian film. Uh, <laughs> Carrie, how did you get involved with this, and what's your relationship to Canadian film? I've been working for Jonathan since 2001. Um, I've been in the film, the home entertainment and film industry since 1995, I'm aging myself, I guess. It's my job. Um, but I am a huge film lover, and I I watch a lot of films. I love to stay in touch with, and I love Canadian films, too. Like we were talking about Outrageous and Hardcore Logo, I was saying, probably tied for my favorite Canadian film. I can never decide which one I like better. I love them both for different reasons. Carrie's involved with women in film. Carrie's involved. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. You're on the ground. <laughs> well, what were some of the others? We're going to talk about four films uh, today and next week. We're going to talk about The Gray Fox, uh, as well as Winter Comes Early, otherwise known as Face Off. Uh, we will be talking about two documentaries, uh, Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World, and the uh, Naomi Klein documentary, This Changes Everything. But uh, there, like I said, there was a big list you guys sent to me. What were some other films you want people to pay attention to before we get into those ones? I think, I think the original Black Christmas is still a class. You know, it's been remade 18 different ways. Uh, I think that's a classic. I think, you know, My American Cousin, which we don't have, we love to have. It's a real classic. Um, you know, Paperback Hero, which hasn't come out and is difficult. But we, we chased the rights for that for a long time. Um, uh, that's what I'd like to get out before it's too late. With Care Delay, it's got a hockey angle to it. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, there's, there's a couple of small films. Like I said, it, 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 it goes back to the day where this stuff wasn't really even subsidized. You know, they made going down the road for eighty-seven grand. Oh, you know, that's, 
you know, a lot of people say that's 50 years old. That might be one of the great Canadian films of all time. It still holds up. We just had Jane Eastwood on the show talking about it. And uh, on the rewatch, it's so ahead of its time. And uh, I think yeah. holds up significantly better than other films that were considered visionary at that time in a similar vein, like Easy Rider, which has its moments, but it definitely feels dated. There's something still very relatable and uh, fascinating about going down the road and clearly incredibly influential. Well, I'm not going to agree with you on the Easy Rider thing, but you go. <laughs> you, go, you go, girl, because that's fabulous. Yeah. Um, and before uh, we move on from this, like I, we should say that we've worked a lot with Bruce McDonald, not, not that this has to do with going down the road, but um, with Bruce McDonald, we put out um, the, the, the road trilogy and dance me outside and uh, the res and Twitch city all out on DVD. Somewhat. We put out, we were the ones who first put out Parker logo on Blu-ray. It's still one of the top 10 rock and roll movies of all time because there's a real rock and roll is in it. You know, it has the guys from the headstones. And and they, it's a real rock band. Yeah, Hugh Hugh doesn't like me much, but um. <laughs> on the commentary track for Harker logo, Hugh, Dill, Hugh Dillon tells Jonathan to uh, I don't know if I can say the word, but f off. <laughs> <laughs> or, is, or does he tell you to shut the f up? I can't remember anymore. Anyway, it's one of the two. It's one, one of the, of the two. two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but but I remember I restored that film myself. I I we I went in the lab and did the sound and. It was it was a big deal, and uh, we put a lot of money in that film because I love Bruce. He's one of the great people in the country, and he his heart's in the right place. And now let's get into some of the films you guys picked today. The first one we're going to have a look at is The Gray Fox, which is 1982. It Philip Borsos directed it, written by John Hunter. We're going to get into that a little bit, starring Richard Farnsworth, Jackie Burroughs. And uh, one of my personal favorites, Wayne Robson. Let's start with you, Jonathan. Why did you pick this film for the list? I, I think Borsos in his very short life was a genius. Revisionist Westerns are kind of a passion of mine. And I remember when I first started at The Sun, I was 24 or 5 years old. They sent me out to review Steve McQueen's, one of his last movies, Tom Horn, which was a revisionist Western with Richard Farnsworth in it. Then Farnsworth, I think after that, and I might be mistaken, did The Gray Fox. And he just plays it as a tone. The only I can compare it to is, is Pesci in The Irishman, where he plays it so down key that the suffering is, is exponentialized because it's all internalized. And I thought it was a terrific film. I, I congratulate our friends at Kino for, for getting into the legals because it was tied up in a bunch of bankruptcies. And I think Borsos, uh, God rest his soul, deserved a... A victory lap on this one. Carrie, do you want to walk us through uh, just briefly the plot of this film? Yeah, so The Gray Fox, which I'd actually never seen before, it's uh, it's a biopic about Bill Miner, who was a, uh, he was a stagecoach robber who went to jail, and the film starts when he gets out of jail and realizes that there aren't any stagecoaches to rob anymore, so he pivots to train robbing. And it's kind of the story of his sojourn in Canada, um, where he, I guess it's according to a light Wikipediaing that I did, it, it's arguable whether or not he was the first, he performed the first train robbery in Canada, but he may have. Um, in any case, he robbed a train in Canada and became a little bit of a hero because apparently everyone hated CN back in those days. And um, so he was a little bit of a folk hero. And 
anyway, it's his story of when he was living in Kelowna, I believe. Was it Kelowna or Kamloops? Um, I was Kamloops. Anyway, uh, when he was, I was just in Kelowna, so I think I have Kelowna in my brain. Um, anyway, when he was living in in hiding in, in, in B.C. This film is notable for a number of reasons. First, as we've talked about in the show several times, Canada didn't really have a film industry until like the mid 70s, early mid 70s, and especially not in BC. A lot of the stuff was centralized around uh, Toronto, obviously. But uh, what Borsos did is he was like, hey, you know what's gorgeous and there's great people, there's lots of potential here because, you know, there's no snow, there's lots of light, it's very similar to LA. We should start shooting stuff in BC. And this is one of the first films to come out of BC that like really took advantage of what it looked like, uh, what the crews were capable of, how you could play with it. And also the fact that Bill Miner was working in that area. So a lot of the scenes take place in the actual locations where reputably these things happened. Um, So that's really cool, as well as taking advantage of a lot of local talent and and bringing everybody in. And uh, his gamble paid off. I mean, this was nominated and won for a ton of Gemini Awards. It was nominated for Academy Awards. It won two Golden Globes. Like, it was ridiculously celebrated at the time. The art direction's great. Again, like I said, and even even there's a, a subtext of, of women's suffragists, you know, and, and women's rights and stuff with Jackie Burroughs. And I thought that was a very interesting character, you know, and it, it really had a lot going for it. Yeah, Jackie Burroughs ha- plays a photographer who Bill Miner kind of falls for while he's um, in hiding. And I bet that um, Richard Farnsworth or Jackie Burroughs, for that matter, weren't really expecting to play like romantic leads at their ages at the time of shooting, I have to say, but they, uh, it's a nice little story. Even though Bill Miner was American, he was known as the gentleman bandit. So, I mean, I guess you can't be more Canadian than that. Like he's, he was known for, for not, for being polite about his robberies. Apparently he's the person who invented the phrase hands up. And he, he was known for being very kind to his victims and I mean, as nice as I guess you can be when you're robbing someone. But it just it just had something that it has something that that I've been ranting about lately in film. It, it had a tiny bit of charm, and we live in a charmless world. What what Borsos captured was, I mean, it it seems kind of silly to say, but it's a kind of Canada that no longer exists anymore. The kind of nature of the filmmaking that that wasn't aggressive in its theses. It was just. We're going to tell this story as well as we can. We're going to let the pictures do the talking. The personalities were very accurate. Kind of conversation, the patois was was very well done. And I felt I was involved and immersed in in a situation. And the restoration is lovely. It's going to play well for us on DVD, and, and we're very excited. It'll be coming out probably in the spring sometime. I think one of the things that's so interesting to me about this film is that Borsos was only 27 when he directed this. Like, he was young, young, young. And it reminds me, of course, of Sarah Polly doing Away From Her and both of them making these films as young people looking at people who are at a significantly later stage of their life and possibly finding new love, understanding the idea that love does not necessarily last forever and that you're going to lose people. And, And you have this, like, 
like, even though it's very sweet, the relationship between Jackie Burroughs and Richard Farmsworth, there is that melancholiness that they don't actually end up together and that they're, they're kind of of two different worlds and they're older. So do they have another chance at love? Do they have another chance at anything? And when younger people take on these kinds of stories and put that point of view on it, uh, I'm always fascinated as to why they, they choose those projects and why they approach them. Yeah, but there was, there was, a, there was a, a, a wisdom to, to Farnsworth's performance, not so much old and aged performance, but a wisdom to it. And and she was kind of very of the world, and she had her own, you know, thoughts about life. And, and I thought that was, I didn't see them as old timers. I felt them as, as people of a certain wisdom. Mm. And I thought that came through a lot of living. And I, and I felt that was one of the best parts of the script. You mentioned the script and the writing and how charming that is. And uh, the writer, John Hunter, we haven't talked about his films on the show yet, but I'm dying for someone to bring them because I love both of them. Uh, the two ones he had done before this point were Blood and Guts, which is a touring wrestling movie, which I love, uh, and The Hard Part Begins. And both of those films are about drifters, about people who are really looking for their place. And uh, both of those definitely very raw, like they're very tax shelter era, not huge budgets, but lots of great story, lots of great characters, and, and for me, very fun to watch. And this feels like such a refined, logical progression of those films about someone who is still looking for where he belongs in the world, um, but with a, with a more um, mature tone, as you mentioned. And, and that one of the things that you talk about the CFTC days when people could invest films and get a 200% write-off. I mean, there's lots of dreck being made back then by people that I knew who made a lot of money making dreck. And occasionally something good popped through. This is one of them. You know, there's a, there's a handful of films of that era that that were of a certain quality that kind of stood above the usual tax shelter dreck. Uh, that's kind of the achievement that I find to be most fascinating because you know, everybody could have mailed this stuff in, taken their money and gone home, but they didn't. And and it's it's a tribute to Borsos again, who who would have been a titan in Hollywood had he lived a little longer. Well, let's talk about uh, some of that shelter era film with the next film you guys picked. It is known in Canada as Face Off. It was known in the U.S. as Winter Comes Early. It's 1971, so it's the year directly after Going Down the Road. So Canada's film industry is like, oh, we have a film industry. So that's very exciting. Uh, why did you guys pick this one, Jonathan? I don't think that film had any tax shelters. I, I believe Johnny Bassett put his own money in and, and just made the movie. It was a million-dollar budget in, a, in an era where that was ridiculous amount of money. Look, I'm a hockey fan. My father had seasons tickets in Maple Leaf Gardens. Harry will attest to my hockey fandom. I was down there when they were shooting it. There's some technical things in the film that could never happen anywhere again. There's three kinds of hockey footage in the film. There's legitimate NHL footage where Jim McKenney, the Leaf at the time, plays a double for Art Hindle's character while he's playing for the Leaf. There's footage they set up in Maple Leaf Gardens where Art Hindle's actually fighting with real NHL players, which would never happen again. And then there's other footage where 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 he's where 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 Jim McKinney is I mean it's ridiculous amount of hockey footage. A lot of it's shot in buildings that don't exist anymore. Um but it's a classic Bill Spunska. When I was a kid you, you read these Neil Neil Young's father, Scott Young, wrote these books you read as a kid, like Bill Bill Spunska, Boy on Defense and 
scrubs on skates of some poor kid of Winnipeg makes it to the NHL. This was my life. This was the equivalent of the Hardy Boys. I think Scott Young, I think, wrote this thing. And it's just one of those Canadian films that were never... I remember when the premiere was a red carpet premiere when the Carlton Theater was one screen. It was a huge deal in Canada. Most films back then were going down the road or the woodchuck hibernates and snowy climbs. You know, it, it was it, it was it was for the NFB. This is a real feature film shot in color, with a love story and music and lots of celebrities, and and real Leafs acting in it, like you know George Armstrong. And well, not just the Leafs. You see Bobby Orr. You see Gordy Howe jumping right. off the board. So yeah, Jonathan, you, can board. you explain a little? Because you're the expert on this one, like how they shot the hockey games, like, that they well, went they shot, to... They, they, they went to, on the road uh, to these arenas, and Jim, Jim McKinney was playing for them. Now, the Bassets owned a piece of the Leafs. Okay, we should also explain the, that Art Handel's character in the film plays for the Leafs, and they have the real NHL right. marks and everything. Which they would yeah, never get now. No yeah. yeah, yeah, NHL, exactly. NHL has Especially no, with all that fighting. Was, <laughs> wait, the, the NHL back then was run out of Montreal, it was a 12, maybe a 12, 14 team league. No one cared. And the Bassets, I'm not sure you understand how powerful the Bassets were in Toronto. They owned CFTO. They owned Baton, which was a, a the Baton was a mix of Bassett and Eaton. And they owned CFTO, CTV. These were very, 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 this is, you know, royalty in Canada. And so they could do what they want. And and he, he owned Maple Leaf Gardens with Ballard and the Smites, so they can do what they want. So they paid these NHL guys to fly up to Toronto. They asked kids to come in and pay four dollars to sit in the seats and watch this, and they had four or five thousand people sit there, and they would stage actual games, three or four games in an afternoon. The Bruins were playing, the Hawks were playing, the Rangers, and they get like two, three minutes of footage out of it, where Art Hindle, who could skate, God bless him. Was actually getting beat up and checked and getting into fights with also real NHL referee. I mean, it's hard. That would never happen today in a trillion years where they risk yeah. guys getting injured doing a stupid movie in NHL uniforms. <laughs> and, and the story was kind of sweet. And it was about a hippie chick from Yorkville. And I remember Yorkville from that era. And it, you know, it, because it, it was such a big, when I was a kid, when this thing came out, it was a big deal. And and I don't even think we have any stock left. I mean, like I closed it, but it was it had to be ten, eleven years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that, that we were making enough money on corner gas. I could have a few laughs. That was like the same. It's off topic, but like we restored stuff like the Ruddles, you know, from Lauren Michaels' company because we wanted to, and and so we were having fun restoring movies for a while. Now, you made a film that is, or you restored this film for people exactly like me. Like, this fits exactly in my wheelhouse. It is perfectly absurd and wonderful and weird. And the hockey is very cool. And that's all really neat to see Derek Sanderson and uh, just kind of, like, chumming it up with Art Hindle. Like, that's all really cool. But for me, it's the, like, um, love story. I mean, that by the film Love Story, like, plot line about the hockey player and two people from two different worlds and will they ever work together and uh and i just think it's so over the top and so glorious and trudy young sings all her own music as this hippie chick and uh the lines are awesome it's like that perfect midnight movie uh restoration sitting in a time capsule um of what the world used to be i want her pants with those stars down the side um 
<laughs> I, 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 I drove a Fiat, a Fiat Spider convertible with the little flower stickers on it. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. 100%. And then, like you said, seeing Yorkville in this time capsule, Outrageous has something very similar where they're walking down Bloor Street and you're like, oh, that's what that used to look like. Going down the road has that with, um, with Young Street and how cool Young Street used to be. And I don't think a lot of people realize that Yorkville used to be like the center of hippie culture. That's where Joni Mitchell was. That's where Gordon Lightfoot was doing shows in the coffee houses. And then they got into trouble with the Hells Angels and the Hells Angels came in and there were riots and the police got involved and then it turned into the urban center of fashion that we now know um but to see it in the before time is just so interesting to me with these fantastic over-the-top wonderful performances by a very young art handle and a very young trudy young we haven't talked about trudy young on the show yet but we need to because she was part of a kids show on cbc she was one of the hosts called razzle dazzle razzle dazzle was started by michelle finney and Al Hamill went on to become, you know, Mr. Suzanne Summers. Trudy Young followed Michelle Finney. She was a real Canadian star. And everybody as a kid watched Razzle Dazzle. Which I love because now she's playing this, like, incredibly drugged out hippie. It's a very tragic ending, but it's also wonderful and absurd. She's singing her own music. So this was kind of like her Miley Cyrus, Hannah, Hannah Montana moment of, like, hey, I'm not a little girl on your razzle-dazzle anymore. Now I'm playing these, like, big, mature characters. And I love that. I think it's so spectacular. And Trudy and Young is also, tough. like, the nicest person on earth. She's had a very tough life. And, and um, we're so thrilled that she came down to the event and, 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 and hung out with us. And it was yeah, when we treat. released it, uh, the DV, the Blu-ray, we had a an event at the Hockey Hall of Fame and Arden and Trudy came. And Trudy was like really sweetly appreciative that we put this out and that someone remembered her performance and, and that it was getting a second life. It, it was lovely to see. She's one of those people that sort of radiates loveliness out of her yeah and the 27 years you've been around that was a high point for me putting that out and even though i didn't make any money i i had such a good time doing it that so it was something hard about the money clearly a labor of love and i love it so much and i'm so glad i've seen it uh and i want more people to see it so let's talk about how people can find all the work of unobstructed view as well as find these two particular films yes face off is on itunes and it's also, there's some Blu-rays floating around on Amazon and out there. I know we are personally out of stock, but I think that it's because we shipped a bunch of stuff to Amazon recently. So there should be some out there, hard copies. And if not, you can watch it on iTunes. I think we should take a minute too to, to appreciate John Vernon, who played the coach in this film and is a stalwart Canadian act, was a stalwart Canadian actor. Um, he played. Vernon, he says no. Yeah. for his Dean Wormer from Animal House. I mean, I think he modeled Dean Wormer after <laughs> the coach. But but John Vernon is a classic Canadian actor. He's a cousin of my my former father-in-law. And and uh, he was. Don't forget, back then there was a short roster of Canadian actors that could do the job, and Vernon was one of those guys who went back to the sixties and theater and toughing it out in Toronto, making no money and, and, and made a career for himself. I think you know? he gives that best performance in the film, if you ask me. I think he does. I think he absolutely does. Although Art Hindle uh, is, is, I think, Art Hindle capturing a rookie hockey player. Uh, that was pretty good. And Trudy was good. I don't think anybody was bad. 
in the film, maybe Harold Ballard. But <laughs> but but I, I don't I don't even George Armstrong. They took this hockey player. Here, George, here's some lines. You know, what, what acting experience did George Armstrong ever have? Man, you know, even the shots where they go and Trudy has an album out and, and they're doing an in-store at Eaton's College Street. Who remembers Eaton's College Street? Nobody. I remember the first time I watched this movie when we were working on the restoration, I phoned you, Jonathan, and I said, there was an Eaton's at Young and College? And you, and you sort of said, what? Yeah, of course, you don't remember it? And I said, where is it? Is it the winners now? <laughs> and yes, it is the winners now for anybody who's wondering. They had a nice cafeteria. Um, but but I, I, I'm going back to that's where John Candy was discovered, by the way. Eaton's College Street. Just, you know, you wanna, he was selling shirts at a men's counter when he was in high school. My father's friend, Catherine McCartney, was casting me, the heavy set guy, for a commercial. Saw him and pulled him out. Wow. Yeah, that's a great that's story. Candy. Yeah, it's these little stories that we find of like, oh yeah, that's this. So that was his Lana Turner moment, right? Just sipping a milkshake right. in the go. middle of eating, folding <laughs> some shirts. That's right. No, no, no. That's 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 a true story. No, that's um, wonderful. And that's what we go back to because I I remember everybody back then. Toronto was a little tiny community of people. No one was going to the states. No one, you know, it was. Yeah, the time capsule of this, and Outrageous is similar, where it's this time capsule of Toronto in the early 70s, but it's 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 like for people like me that weren't in Toronto in the early 70s, it's, it's, it's interesting, it's a historical thing. Actually, once I was watching Outrageous with Phil Marshall, um, and it's, there's a, a scene where one of the characters is running down the street, and there's all this construction behind her, and he said, oh, that construction, it's the Eaton Center being built. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, right. uh, which we should also talk about where people can see the gray fox and all of the beautiful elements well, the gray, of, uh, of that. Right. The gray fox so, is going to go out. Ron Mann is, is going to take a, a, a theatrical, kind of a, do a little theatrical spin on it. I, I don't think there's a television sale yet. Um, there'll be an iTunes play, I'm sure. But we will have a Blu-ray with new bonus features in the spring. And we'll let you know when that is exactly so you can tell your, 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 your listeners. And that's coming out uh, through our partners uh, with Kino Lorber, yeah. who we work with in Canada. And we'll be talking about more Kino Lorber next week, so you're going to want to make sure to tune in then. But for now, I want to say thank you so much to my guests. That's Jonathan Gross and Terry Kupitz. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will get back to you next week. Thank you. That was thank really you so fun. much. I'm having a great time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.